You are on the Crooked Mile. Join Ed on another fabulous adventure. Thanks very much. Thank you. Welcome again, everyone. Yes, you are on the Crooked Mile. And we have got a lot of ground to cover. So here we go. There was a raging river and a dry wasteland and desperate days. So there came a need. And from this need came the incredible story of deals and danger and the motivated engineering that made a desert come to life and blossom. The great river from its source in British Columbia near the crest of the Rocky Mountains, twisting its way through the Pacific Northwest, the mighty Columbia River needed some help to get the water where we needed it the most. Eastern Washington, the mighty Columbia flows, as I said, down from the Canadian Rockies and cuts its way across the state of Washington out to the Pacific. But as the river flows and turns west, the river bends by an ancient dry riverbed called the Grand Coulee. The Grand Coulee was left by the Ice Age floods. The coulee itself is about 50 miles long and about 900 feet deep. And like everything else about this story, it's huge. For thousands of years, that coulee was dry. The land around it, the Columbia Basin, was a barren and mostly uninhabitable landscape. Some say that it is the harshest desert in the whole United States. It's amazing too when you're out there in that part of the country, you can see some of the old, long forgotten homes out there in the middle of the desert. Some are big old farmhouses and barns still standing after 100 plus years, although mostly twisted and leaning to one side. And the wind out there can blow like nobody's business. It will blow tumbleweeds the size of trucks. And those things seem to come alive when the wind is blowing, racing across the desert like a herd of crazed cattle. It's crazy. I mean, if you ever find yourself out there on one of them old, lonesome two-lane highways and a herd of crazed tumbleweeds start crossing the highway in front of you, just let them pass. You don't want to get caught up in that mess. Anyway, with the winds and annual rainfall of about maybe six inches, Tumbleweeds are about the only thing that grow out there. Tumbleweeds and rattlesnakes, of course. Now, it is said that the early settlers to the area long imagined that if they could use the river to fill up the Grand Coulee, the massive lake created would irrigate the Columbia Basin. But of course, there was a bit of a mountain between the river and the coulee. So, there emerged two schools of thought. Two groups that had very different ideas to bring the water to the Columbia Basin. One group was known as the Pumpers, and the other group was known as the Ditchers. The second group, the Ditchers, proposed a series of canals from Lake Ponderay and called it the Gravity Plan. They said, don't put a dam in, let's just build these canals and have the gravity do its thing, and we'll bring the water right down here. Kind of a big huge problem with that plan is that Lake Ponderay is about 200 miles away from the basin. The Columbia River on the other hand provided another option. It was only one mile from the empty Grand Coulee. 
The trouble, though, with that one mile was that it was all uphill. So the pumpers envisioned blocking the river and forming a lake behind the dam and then actually pumping the water up into the Grand Coulee. You see, they believed the dam would create a reservoir and would generate enough power to pump the water from the reservoir 280 feet up into the coulee. From there, the water could flow freely into the rest of the Columbia Basin. So check it out. The dishers, it seemed, had some high-powered support from the man who built the Panama Canal, a Mr. George Washington Gothels. So, of course, he was all in about building canal system. The pumpers, however, had some high-profile support of their own. Local Wenatchee Daily World newspaper editor and publisher Rufus Woods. He was sometimes referred to as the High Priest of the Columbia River. Mr. Woods was a very influential man, but even so, it took him at least 20 years of fighting to defeat the gravity plan. Rufus Woods knew all about the importance of irrigation water and what it can do. And what it can do is transform a Pacific Northwest desert into an American Garden of Eden. Then throw in just a bit of hydroelectrical power and the Columbia Basin could become an industrial power center as well. But back in the 1920s, there weren't enough people in the state of Washington to use the power that was said to be created. There was this notion that the project, a dam, would flood the market with electricity that no one needed. <laughs> Little did they know. But Rufus Woods would not be deterred. He lobbied hard for federal support. Presidents Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover, Hoover, yes, Hoover, all seriously considered the Grand Coulee Dam proposal, but ultimately all three decided that the timing of the project wasn't quite right. So basically, there was about a 20-year fight just to consider building the dam. But when the Depression hit, that changed everything. Franklin D. Roosevelt came to power and promised to put people to work with big government projects. So, looking for ways to put people back to work, you could say that the Grand Coulee Dam project was now the right thing to do, and this was the right time to do it. It really was exactly what FDR was looking for. A shovel-ready project, as it were, that required a heck of a lot of shovels. Roosevelt authorized $63 million to build a low dam. That was a lot lower than Woods had hoped for, but he would take what he could get. The thought was that if construction on a low dam would started, they would see people put back to work, and then they would see that a higher dam was not only possible, but necessary. So, the Bureau of Reclamation put their best man on the job. His name, Chief Engineer Frank Banks. Sound familiar? Anyone? Yes? No? Maybe? Well, anyway, by the time Banks gets to the Grand Coulee gig, he had been building dams for 30 years. <laughs> but before he could get going on the dam project, he had another major issue to deal with first. Thousands of men showed up to go to work. There were no accommodations in the area. They had no relatives around. They certainly had no homes to go to. They just took a big chance because they needed and wanted to get back to work. These guys were staying in their cars. They brought tents or whatever. 
just not ideal living conditions at all. So in order to house his crews, Banks built two separate towns, Mason City for the laborers and Engineerstown for the engineers. And while Banks built the infrastructure, Rufus Woods stoked up public support and convinced FDR to visit the site. So before a single shovel hit the dirt, FDR shows up on the job site and is greeted by about 20,000 people waiting to hear him give a speech. Among other things, FDR said was, we are creating more power. And so the Grand Coulee Dam became the symbol of Roosevelt's New Deal, and it absolutely had to work. Rubus Woods sold the idea, and Frank Banks had to make it work. So, now risking wading too far into the weeds, check this out. To make the project a reality and to be able to support the dam, they had to excavate down to the bedrock, which means they had to haul out 22 million cubic yards of dirt and rock. 22 million cubic yards. Now, I don't know what that equates to as comparison to how many Mount Rainiers that might be, but I got it on pretty good authority. Expert analysis, as a matter of fact. 22 million cubic yards of material that these guys hauled out was enough material to cover about 4,400 football fields. That's 4,400 football fields at the depth of about three feet. Simply amazing. So now the challenge was, before Banks could build the dam to stop the river, he had to stop the river to build the dam. So in order to do that, the crews had to install a series of temporary barriers called coffer dams. The Columbia River, being the awesome force of nature that it is, these temporary coffer dams had to absolutely be installed in the winter when the river was at its lowest. I mean, the Columbia River offered an ever-present danger and when the spring runoff started, you were in danger of losing absolutely everything. I mean everything. And the river, it doesn't care. Spring was coming fast, so the crews raced like the devil to get these coffer dams installed. And they completed the coffer dams just days before the river swelled to 32 feet above its normal height. Nothing about this project was small. The vision now, though, is actually taking shape. Build the dam, flood the Grand Coulee, and bring the water to the high desert. But the river says, not so fast. With the help of the surrounding elements, the mighty Columbia will not surrender without a fight. One of the things that plagued construction was the surrounding earth itself. The dirt was an incredibly loose material, and you so much as look at it wrong, it would slide. So to combat this problem, Banks piped in ammonia to freeze the ground. Okay, so now the epic foundation. With concrete flowing, the crews met another problem. When you lay that much concrete, it shrinks over time, and then it cracks. Cracks in a dam, probably not good. So to prevent cracking, Banks ordered concrete to be poured into hundreds of individual blocks, and every single block of concrete had to pull its own weight. There can be no weak links. And every man had to risk his life. Sixty men died laying the foundation alone. 
As tragic as that was, though, it did not deter the 8,000 men that showed up for work during the dark days of the Depression. And the work wasn't easy. In the hot summers and cold winters, the noise would be deafening, the dust would be choking. The men went through absolute hell just to work at the dam. And in the winter of 1935, some of the original concrete froze, so that meant the crews had to come in and chip all that material out and start over. Then, another spring thaw brought yet another complication. You see, when cement and water meet up, there's a reaction that produces heat, a lot of heat, which, if not controlled, also causes concrete to crack. So Banks used the river to his advantage. He had thousands of miles of one-inch pipe cast into the concrete. So when the concrete was curing, water was run through these pipes to carry the heat out. So now with the foundation down and the concrete set, one thing became abundantly clear. The already record-breaking project was not nearly big enough. The Grand Coulee Dam so far had used more concrete than any other project in history, but it wasn't enough. A 290-foot dam would never generate the electricity to pay for itself. Banks realized he needed to build the dam way higher. A high dam would not only produce enough power to irrigate the high desert, it would also generate enough power to sell as well as fill the Grand Coulee and then provide water throughout the region which, of course, was Rufus Wood's real dream. But Roosevelt only agreed to pay for a 290-foot dam. So again, Rufus Woods had to get to work and keep the momentum going. The Wenatchee Daily World covered the construction of the dam almost on a daily basis. The public wanted to know, and he would keep the people up to date. He would explain things and tell the public how and why tax dollars was being spent. His campaign, directed towards the public as well as towards the federal government, paid off. Congress finally agreed to ante up for a 550-foot dam. The higher dam not only had a higher price tag, but it also came with a higher human cost as well. Seventeen more men died building the dam, and the huge reservoir it created displaced thousands of people. Over 56,000 acres were flooded around the lake. That displaced a lot of people, settlers and tribal people alike. So, it's no wonder that the Grand Coulee Dam means so many things to so many people. Now, as I said, nothing about the Grand Coulee Dam was small. For example, they had to ship in by rail these giant tubes called penstocks that had to be constructed fit together on site, then they actually had to build the dam itself around these penstocks. But these giant penstocks would mean absolutely nothing unless the water they carried could be transformed into electricity. And so things just keep getting bigger. A single power plant was not nearly enough to handle the power from a 550-foot dam. So, of course, Mr. Frank Banks built a second power plant on the opposite side. Now mind you, I am no electrician by any means. I can't explain megawatts or gigawatts or flux capacitors or anything like that. All, although I can string up a pretty impressive display of Christmas lights. But beyond that, not so much. I want to flip the switch and I want the lights to come on.
But anyway, on March 22, 1941, the 550-foot Grand Coulee Dam was finally ready to power up. The newsreels at the movies theater said, The biggest thing ever built by man goes to work for mankind. It had taken 11 million cubic yards of concrete, $163 million, that's yesterday's dollars, and the lives of 77 men. So it certainly was a time to pause and reflect on the great achievement that these men had accomplished. But there couldn't be a lot of time taken for looking back. The power was on, but the job at this point was only half done. The main point of the project was to irrigate the high desert. But before the pumps could be built to do that job, the Grand Coulee Dam got pulled into a very different mission. Before the dam could begin its life in the ag business, it got drafted into World War II. The American war machine was all hands on deck right now. The Army Air Force needed planes. Planes, of course, needed aluminum. And aluminum plants in the Pacific Northwest needed power. During the war, the Grand Coulee Dam produced most of the electricity in the Northwest, which was critical for the war effort. And when the war was over, the farmers finally got their dam back. But still, it ain't over. You see, getting the water from the reservoir 280 feet up into the Grand Coulee would require another major engineering feat. It was a system of electric pumps. These pumps began pumping the first irrigation water up the 280-foot embankment to a canal which spilled into a new lake. Banks Lake, named in honor of Chief Engineer Frank Banks, is the crowning achievement of the dam. This was the Grand Coulee, that ancient dry riverbed high in the desert. And from this height, a network of aqueducts carried the water throughout the Columbia Basin. So, you see, we wouldn't have the successful agriculture business we have today without the Grand Coulee Dam. It could be argued that from the completion of the dam, the Pacific Northwest was born. And to this day, the Pacific Northwest, or even more specifically, Central Washington, remains a major but subtle power player. So in 1950, President Harry Truman dedicated the reservoir behind the dam to his former boss, President Franklin D. Roosevelt, and called it, of course, Roosevelt Lake, or actually, as it's known around these parts, as Lake Roosevelt. But Frank Banks and FDR weren't the only ones to have a lake named after them. Just north of Lake Roosevelt is about a 51-mile stretch of river where the newsman Rufus Woods got one too. Then in 1967, Construction began on the massive 20-story-high third power plant, and today the Grand Coulee Dam is the largest hydropower producer in the United States, producing 21 billion kilowatt-hours of electricity a year. And like I said, I'm no electrician, but that's a lot. And sitting at the top of the list of the most powerful dam sits the Grand Coulee. But me? I am just grateful that the men had what it took to get the job done. And also, I'm grateful that when I flip the switch, my lights come on. Thanks for listening. Until next time.